to this very special episode of the Tudor Travel Show. This, in fact, is a mini podcast that I wanted to bring to you so that we could talk about and I could introduce you to this month's mini virtual autumn summit, the rise and fall of Cardinal Wolsey, which takes place at the end of this month over the weekend of the 28th and 29th of November. But I'm not alone in this podcast. I have Professor Glenn Richardson, who is one of our speakers on the summit, joining me to talk about the summit, but also to explore and discuss how Woolsey has been seen across the centuries, from gluttonous, greedy, villain of the story, to taking his place perhaps more recently as a more revered international statesman and Henry VIII's accomplished first minister. So why don't you come along with me, join me in conversation with Glenn where we can explore these topics and you can find out more about all the Tudor delights that will be waiting you in the Tudor Summit and plus of course plenty of information about the speakers who are taking place and how you can join. Okay, so let's go over and join my conversation with Glenn. So hello, Glenn. Welcome back to the Tudor Travel Show. And thank you for dropping by um, because you are here as my special guest in this episode of the Tudor Travel Show to help me announce my forthcoming autumn virtual summit, which is entitled The Rise and Fall of Cardinal Wolsey. Thank you, Sarah. Lovely to be uh, with you again. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a busy year for you, hasn't it, Glenn? Because <laughs> it has, yes. You participated in my um, summit earlier on this year, which was all about the 500th anniversary of the Field of Cloth of Gold with your book, of course, by the same name. And, and now we are fast approaching the 490th anniversary of the sad demise of Thomas Woolsey. And I know this year you've published a new book, a new biography of Woolsey, and you've kindly agreed to enter the fray again and come and spearhead the charge for the Autumn Summit. My pleasure. So, so well, you know, what I thought, because obviously, um, as people will find out when we get into the summit, we, we've, we've recorded some interviews together and there'll be loads of detail about Woolsey and that. But I thought we'd be good to get in the mood. And so perhaps we could just focus a little bit on people's perceptions of Cardinal Woolsey. I mean, he's an interesting character. I don't suppose he has the same kind of fan base of the likes of Anne Boleyn or Catherine of Aragon, etc. But he's a fascinating character. And I'd really like to ask you about what you think of how people perceive him and maybe how he has been perceived over the centuries. Yes, of course. I mean, I agree with you. I think he is a fascinating character. And uh, as I begin the book by by reminding people, and I think as we'll do with the, the summit, that um, you can't really understand um, Henry VIII, certainly the young Henry VIII, without some understanding of Cardinal Wolsey and the way the two work together. And just trying to work out how those two men from such different backgrounds and experience managed to form 
one of the most extraordinary political and personal relationships in English history, uh, with such consequences for English history, mm. um, is is really what I find so fascinating about him and his qualities. And I think we'll talk about that in, in the summit. Um, Wolsey's always um, suffered in a funny way directly from the consequences of his own failure in a, in a very unexpected way, because of course, he couldn't. The great thing that everybody knows about Cardinal Wolsey is he couldn't bring about the annulment of Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. The consequence of that was the break with Rome, and then over the course of the next century, there was the um, uh, the, the reign of Edward the Sixth, and then Mary, and then Elizabeth, and and the whole Protestantization of England, the Reformation. Um, not so much in Henry's reign, but in, in the years afterwards. And from that perspective, and, and out of which grew a kind of sense of the, the kind of Whiggish view of history, the, the providential view of, of God <laughs> blessing England and Britain, etc., which we still have with us in some quarters today. Um, uh, and in that light of a kind of Protestant providentialism, Wolsey has always looked, until relatively recently, uh, anachronistic, uh, if not a, uh, a sort of difficult, uh, hostile figure, because in that narrative, in that sense of the emergence of English and British Protestant destiny, he stands there as the kind of last bastion of medieval Catholicism, as the great Cardinal Legate Alatere in England, um, the, the the Pope's Cardinal who you know couldn't bring about what uh, was obviously the manifest destiny of England, that kind of thing. So he's always been viewed, I think, unfairly or very often un unfairly uh, in, in English history. That's not always, but, but generally. I mean, the first uh, effort to, to denigrate his memory came not long after his death. You know, a play was composed, uh, which was performed uh, in front of uh, the Duke of Norfolk, um, which sort of was the, you know, Wolsey going to hell, and apparently Henry VIII saw that and laughed uproariously at it, and it was a sort of satire of, of the Cardinal. Um, there'd been a criticism of him uh, in a number of the contemporary sources or near-contemporary sources, um, particularly Polydor Virgil, his, his account of English history, really cast Wolsey as, as the very definition of, a, of an almost menacing, threatening, aggrandizing, self-righteous, pompous kind of, all the embodiments of, of the worst aspects of, of the, the Catholic hierarchy. Um, even that was even, that was even before we got started. Edward Hall in his chronicle uh, of the reign of Henry VIII, effectively, um, uh, picked up on all of that. Uh, Hall might have known Wolsey little, but uh, he certainly was very antithetical towards him, saw him as ineffective as a cardinal, as pompous, as arrogant, overbearing, all these kinds of words which we associate with, with Wolsey, mm. of his arrogance and things, for which there is some contemporary evidence. I mean, the man was no saint, uh, but he certainly, because of the role that he played for Henry in uh, enforcing the law, in controlling the nobility, he inevitably uh, attracted a lot of criticism in all kinds of, all kinds of ways. Um, and then that get, gets fed through into the later 16th century in, in the work of um, John Fox, his, his uh, Book of Martyrs, although, to be fair to Fox, Wolsey doesn't come out so badly in that, um, in his discussion of how Wolsey handles uh, some of those people accused of heresy uh, in the early part of his reign. 
he 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 reiterates how arrogant and and pompous Woolsey is, but he also credits Woolsey with listening to um, uh, people like Thomas Barnes and others um, when they're arrested and and tried for for treason. So there's a beginnings of a skerrick of 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 not complete condemnation uh, of Woolsey. Of course. Uh, he, the first person who really tries to resurrect his his reputation, who to defend it, is um, George Cavendish, who writes the, the the biography of Wolsey, upon which historians still depend, the life and death of Cardinal Wolsey, which was written shortly before the end of Cavendish's own life in the reign of of uh, Mary. And uh, there, um, I mean, Cavendish is, is fantastic, and he gives you a lot of detail about the. The life of the cardinal, his artistic patronage, uh, the kinds of uh, household he has, and some of the uh, little episodes that went on. But he also perpetuates some things about Wolsey which have not helped him. For example, his view that Anne Boleyn and uh, her circle were dead against Wolsey and were out to get him from the outset because of Wolsey's supposed interference um, in her relationship uh, with Henry Percy and all all of which is, is a misinterpretation of, of what was going on and overestimates Wolsey's role in all of that. So he, he meant to be sort of helpful, but <laughs> it didn't sort of ultimately help him. Nevertheless, Cavendish gives us a, uh, a more humane and, and more human Wolsey. And I, in, in the book I've relied on and, and referred often to, to Cavendish. Um, as as the uh, as the seventeenth century went on, I, or the late sixteenth, I suppose you get uh, uh, Wolsey appearing, for example, in Shakespeare's um, "All Is True" or Henry VIII, uh, in which you you do get the sense there for the, perhaps the first time in the way that Wolsey appears on stage with Henry. Um, I mean, Henry enters at one point leaning on Wolsey's shoulder. Um, uh, there, there's a real sense of the relationship between the two of them, um, although that's never fully explored. Um, so Shakespeare, as you might expect, also echoes the, the contemporary critical view, but also gives him a bit more humanity and a bit more bit more scale. And then into the 17th and 18th century, I think people begin to try to see him a bit more uh, in context, really for the first time in the biography which is published by uh, Richard Fids or Fides. Um, uh, it, it's a massive great thing. Uh, Wolsey is for the first time really looked at as a statesman. Um, he, uh, Fids, he's able to put aside the 16th and early 17th century preoccupations with um, Catholicism and Protestantism to some extent. He was an Oxford man like um, Wolsey. So he spends a lot of time trying to explain what Wolsey's up to, for example, in his national affairs, which, which hitherto had largely been ignored. Um, and instead of going on about how pompous Wolsey was, was trying to sort of uh, get hold of, of how Wolsey was trying to make Henry great internationally and that he ought to be credited for that. And also, he's the first one to start talking about Wolsey's patronage, obviously at, uh, at Oxford, um, mm. at uh, what was Cardinal College, now Christchurch, Oxford. Uh, so, again, you, you get that that sort of beginnings of a more positive spin. That's followed in the 19th century by Mandel Crichton's uh, very sort of sympathetic uh, view of, of Woolsey, perhaps a, a little bit too much. But there's always the, the kind of the, the critical side as well. Uh, I think, like Henry, Woolsey 
uh, experiences a whole new lease of life in the uh, late 19th century, uh, early 20th, with the publication of that great series of state papers, letters and papers drawn from archives around uh, England and, and, and the Royal Archives and National Archives and uh, ambassadorial reports from Venice and elsewhere into, you know, that great huge collection of letters and papers of Henry VIII upon mm. which historians do rely so heavily. Mm. And there you see for the first time just the sheer range of things that Wolsey's occupied with. Just <laughs> unbelievable from... On the one, almost literally one hour to the next, he is negotiating with France uh, and organizing things with the emperor. Uh, a day later, he's occupied with the transfer of monastic lands. Uh, he's dealing with the requests of the nobility for some legal case that he's dealing with in Star Chamber. Uh, he's it, it, Day by day, you can see the myriad of issues upon which Wolsey's engaged so that Henry on the whole doesn't have to be. Uh, and that gives you a real appreciation. And I think people began to take Wolsey really quite seriously when they realized just what a breadth of, you know, he as the Venetian ambassador at the time says, and which has you know, since been recovered, that uh, he says he, he does the work of, of all the councils of Venice, you know, is entrusted to this one man in the 1520s. Um, so by the mid 20th century in the writing of Geoffrey Elton, um, a bit like Pollard, again, Wolsey suffers because he's not Thomas Cromwell. Um, Elton really saw Cromwell as, as the great innovator in Henry's reign with, with some justification. Uh, and he contrasted uh, Cromwell and Wolsey, notwithstanding the, you know, the, the close relationship between the two of them and that Cromwell had worked for Wolsey. Uh, and, and pitched Cromwell as, as the much more significant figure. Um, by the uh, 1970s and 80s and since, uh, in the writings of um, uh, John Guy, who, had, who did a great deal of work on Wolsey's work in the Star Chamber and the Court of Chancery, and then, of course, the, the monumental biography by Peter Gwynne in the, in the 1990s. Um, I think we've now got to a situation where, where people are much more ready, at least I hope so, to see Wolsey much more in his own context and to not blame him or, or not to say that you know, he's somehow at fault because he wasn't mm. somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and, and to see him as uh, as a statesman. Certainly Jack Scalisbrick's biography of Henry VIII gave a, gave a big role in that to Wolsey. And, and that was, I think, the beginning of the modern change. Um, and so what I've tried to, to do in, in the Wolsey book, which is, of course, is, is much shorter, it's much more summative, is to uh, try to to continue that on. Um, I think the importance of Wolsey as a as a patron has been one of the things that that I was very interested in, both a political patron, how Wolsey was able to um, simplify uh, the lines of communication in many ways between the king uh, and the many many people in the localities to whom. He wanted to be in touch and, and upon whom he depended for carrying out the royal will right down to the local level. Wolsey was, was very good as in a way as doing that. Um, the reason why he has such a, a big household is because so much of, of, of Wolsey's, uh, the, the men in Wolsey's household also work directly or indirectly for the king. So he's a real connecting link between the, the central regime as well as being you know, formerly the Lord Chancellor and presiding over the Court of Chancery and um, 
Star Chamber, the Royal Council, and its judicial guys. Informally, he's also uh, a, a great connector, so that it becomes much more desirable to be part of the cardinal's household in order to get access to the king and, and be part and useful to the regime than perhaps had been the case earlier. And uh, in that he's, he's very successful. You have a big household means you've got to have you know big properties, lots of rooms, which explains things like his renovations at York Place and at Hampton Court, which in turn leads us into his own artistic taste and um, uh, Stephen Gunn and Peter Lindley put together a fantastic volume of essays in, in the mid-1990s um, on all of that. So I think, I think we, we now see Wolsey as a much more complex character, a much more interesting character, uh, as much an international character now. That would be the other thing that people like Stella Fletcher and others who worked on him would want us to say that Wolsey is very conscious of himself as a European figure, as a cardinal of the Universal Church, as well as, to be sure, Henry's cardinal, as the King's cardinal, as in the title of Gwynne's book. Uh, and I think that's where things will go in the future. Um, what, uh, what what kind of things once perhaps even, even in the in the Brexit context, you know, in a few years' time. Uh, the, you know what, what's in, what's English or British and what's European, and mm-hmm. so it'd be interesting to, to to know what kind of Wolsey emerges in the next you know twenty to thirty years because it always repays careful study uh, whether you're interested in him as a cardinal or whether you're interested in him primarily as Henry VIII's great servant um, because the kind of king which he helped create in the way that he served Henry and what he did for Henry and with Henry uh, really gave the impetus, although although its effects were very different, unimaginably different from what Wolsey could have thought would be the future, yet the driving force, the sense of royal authority, the capacity to put into action what Henry wanted and Henry's expectation that will be done, that's Wolsey. Wolsey's very much uh, helped to create the man we think of as Henry VIII. And so I'm curious what, you know, obviously through the course of writing this book, we've been talking about perceptions and maybe misperceptions. When you write a book, you obviously always have to dive deep into the character of the person you're writing about. And invariably something reveals itself that you hadn't perhaps fully appreciated before. So I wanted to ask you, was that the case for you when writing this book on Wolsey? Um, I think so. Um, I... Uh, as I said earlier, I mean, I'm fascinated by his uh, his capacity for hard work, his his imagination, his um, where did that come from? From the little that we know about his childhood background, and to be sure, I'm sure a good education at, at uh, Magdalen and Oxford, and uh, a natural talent. But where did that capacity to see things in ways that other people at the time clearly couldn't, to think outside the box, to use a dreadful modern cliche? Um, I think he did that in, in some respects, although ultimately he was also you know, quite conventional. I suppose, um, without contradicting myself, I trust, he, he, he thought imaginatively along conventional lines, which, was, which explains his, his uh, for example, with the annulment. I mean, all the conniptions and plans for to make himself vice pope and all this kind of stuff that he went into, anything and everything, it, the mind fizzing constantly at how he could do things, but I suppose within a within a, a, a structured framework. 
So um, his imagination and his his capacities uh, that that was reconfirmed to me from from my research. Um, I've also wanted uh, to try to unpick this business of him being arrogant and supercilious, and I can't. Henry VIII is a very good judge of character and of leaders. I can't imagine Henry really thinking that he wanted anything to do with Wolsey if that was the Wolsey he saw. And of course, I'm sure Wolsey went out of his way to make sure that, that he didn't see that side of him. But from what does that proceed? All this business with his, every, every time he goes from his house to his workplace, you know, he's got his um, you know, cardinal's hat and all the paraphernalia. Why? Why would you be like that? And and I'm just be, you know speculating that maybe there was a for all his talent, for all his um, energy, perhaps there was a very self-conscious aspect to Wolsey that you know he was dwelling with these people who, so far as he knew and they told him, um, you know, had mm-hmm. ancestry going back to Adam at the highest levels. Of, mm-hmm. you know, that's not really true, but mm-hmm. uh, in the in the time. And who was he? And and how could he possibly overrule these people? No wonder he clung so heavily to the idea of royal authority, and he was the king's cardinal, and um, and of course that's that's how he kept his his job. That's how he kept his favour with Henry. But it it really must immediately have have annoyed other people, and and uh, and, and then to sort of multiply that effect by his very pompous insistence on on ceremony and and all the, that paraphernalia to me speaks of a of a not not conflicted in, in a in a sort of fatal sense but but certainly a very complex and at times conflicted individual mm, interesting because um many people listening to this might not know that my other hat in life is as an organizational development consultant and executive coach so i'm very much into the psychology of behavior so you're describing imposter syndrome maybe <laughs> just a t- I, imposter I, syndrome. I think you put your finger on it. i think there is something of that towards you yeah. i mean he's got he's there's certainly an actor as well um, he's got to look the part. He knows it, and don't forget, he's got two massive, you know, authority figures whom he's representing: um, the king and the pope. Uh, and both of those you know, need to be represented properly. Uh, um, but yeah, and but all that time, that that sense of—it's um, it, the reason why he's always so uh, to the point, almost not at, not just even at the end, but but when he's dealing with the king, he's the the, the way he never calls himself other than. Um, your humble beadsman or your humble chaplain, your humble priest, you know, mm-hmm. that sense that, you know, I must never get above myself with, with the king. Mm-hmm. And yet I, he, he has to effectively, you know, levy authority. Otherwise he's not much use to Henry. Yeah. But the way he does it just gets up everybody's nose. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't make life easy for himself. Maybe if we can, can be tap into this side of Wolsey the man and some of those psychological insecurities, we can connect with him in a much more human way, perhaps. I mean, as, as anyone who reads it will see, I mean, mine, mine is very largely a, a sympathetic biography, and I, I, I admire him. I see, I see his faults and his failings and his um, uh, what he, you know, didn't do and things he think, said he would do and never got round to. But on the whole, if, if you have a, any sort of empathy, you think well. Um, how how would you do and, and what would you do in that situation? And uh, most of the time, he comes across as, as a set of an imaginative and sympathetic character. Others, clearly, historically, have taken a different view. 
Well, let's just talk for a moment um, about the summit and perhaps I can tell our listeners a little bit about the treats that they have in store. So um, the summit is now open and you can sign up via the link, which will I will include in the text associated with this podcast. And it will be running over the 28th and 29th of November, of course, the 29th of November being the 490th anniversary to the day of the demise of Cardinal Wolsey at Leicester Abbey. And we are going to be hearing, first of all, from Glenn, who, Glenn, you're going to be telling us, first of all, about the early life of Cardinal Wolsey and his yes. to power. And we're moving forward chronologically then to hear from Professor Catherine Fletcher from Manchester University, who's going to be talking to us about the King's Great Matter and how Wolsey got embroiled in that and just what happened and what went so catastrophically wrong. No one better. Um, Taking a completely different sidestep, actually, for a moment. You've been talking about Wolsey as a kind of patron of the arts. In fact, that's what we're going to discuss with Jonathan Foyle, architectural historian, who spent a good deal of time at Hampton Court Palace and looking at Wolsey's palace. So he has quite a lot of really interesting things to tell us about the influence behind the building of Hampton Court Palace. Mm connection with Italy and uh, so that's rather fascinating and um, we're then going to be coming back to you to hear about the fall of Cardinal Wolsey so you'll be rounding off the story and, and finally actually folks you're going to be hearing from yours truly because some of you may know that last year I wrote a series of blogs which literally took us on the journey from uh, Carwood or Kaywood I'm never quite sure how you pronounce it <laughs> I've been told off for both ways um, um, through down through Sheffield Manor Lodge and to Leicester and so I'm going to recreate that journey for you and that will round off the summit so it's going to be a weekend of just indulging in Tudor Cardinal Wolsey history so I just want to thank you Glenn for coming along and helping me announce that today and I'm really looking forward to sharing all this with folk out there. My pleasure yes um, likewise I hope people will uh will enjoy it and, and between the, the you know, all of us involved, I'm sure there'll be there'll be a lot of insights which um, perhaps people don't get in, in the general view of Wolsey. So that'd be great. I think so too. It's certainly in doing these interviews, it's certainly rounded out my understanding of the man and uh, his his formidable intellect, his his capacity for work, his just complexity, um, his culture, you know, how cultured he was and, and how much he influenced so many things, both politically and in terms of art and architecture as well. So lots and lots and lots to enjoy. And by the way, I just have to add that when we did our interview at Leicester, of course, we did it at Leicester Abbey. So we did our days of love. Wolsey sitting next to the Lady Chapel. Wolsey was laid to rest. So I think that was quite a yes. moment for us both. It was indeed. And um, I'd, I'd never actually been there before to, until that, that day. So it was, it was a great day for me too. Yeah, lovely. So guys, I hope you're looking forward to that. As I said, all the information you need to be able to sign up will be included in the text associated with this podcast. And of course, I will be um, popping up on social media uh, to advertise what's coming your way and to remind you how to sign up. So I think that's all for us for the time being, Glenn. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. So there you have it, folks. All the information you need about the forthcoming virtual summit the rise and fall of cardinal wolsey i hope you're looking forward to it as much as i am 
So just an additional bit of information that is important, I think, um, because I often get questions about this. If you are signing up for the summit, then you will be able to access all the videos after the summit up until the 5th of January so you do not need to watch them live and I know that makes a difference for a lot of people particularly as it's a busy weekend in the US that weekend with Thanksgiving so yes worry not if you do sign up you have plenty of time to catch up with the videos at your leisure so that link is in the description below and I will look forward to seeing you there until then my friends happy time traveling <laughs>